nothing can stand in the lava's way. Anybody else think volcanoes are kind of cool from a distance? Part of what makes volcanoes so deadly, and they obviously belch poisonous gases, their lava, their magma is deadly. They can wipe out entire cities. But what makes them so dangerous is their volatility. There's usually no or little warning before they blow. Do you realize that inside each of us is a volcano? And when we blow, we can wreak havoc on our lives and on those around us. What do you think we're talking about today? We're not. There's actually something else inside of us that's not anger that makes us quite volatile and unstable. Now, we view anger as a big problem, but this isn't anger. It's something else that we don't really see as a big deal. It's more of a respectable sin. And in that vein, we are continuing with our series, No Big Deal, Exposing Our Respectable Sins. We've talked about complaining, anxiety, and gluttony. That was a fun one. And we're looking at the little things that don't really seem like that big of a deal, but actually can cause incredible harm to us and our families and our friends and the people around us and really disappoint our God. And yet they're not usually a big deal to us. Today, we're going to look at a story of probably the most volatile man in all of the Bible. And unless you know his story, you won't understand the respectable sin that led to his volatility and his biggest failure. So if you would turn with me, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 13 at an incredibly volatile guy. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And this series is kind of loosely based on the premise of Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. Anybody enjoying this if you're reading it? Really good stuff. I've talked to a few of you that said, man, every time I open this book, I get convicted about something else. Um, And so if you want to study this deeper, there's kind of chapters that align with the the respectable sins that we're talking about. Uh, Let me, real quick, before we dive into the text, take a moment to welcome our other campuses. We've got Bainbridge, we've got Cincinnati, we've got online. Welcome all of you to Green as we study the Word of God. Anyone ready to learn this morning? Excellent. We have at least six here at Green ready to learn. 1 Samuel chapter 13. First verse, here we go. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Pause there. I want to give you a little background to this guy. Saul was a small town boy. He might have grown up in Green, New York. He uh, came from a respected uh, family. His dad was respected, but he was from the smallest tribe. He lived in a tribal society. They were ruled by judges. He was from the smallest tribe in his society, collection of tribes, and he was from the weakest clan. So there was nothing significant about this young man, other than as he grew, he grew into a very tall and handsome young man. And one day he was shocked to get a visit from the most distinguished man in his entire tribal community a guy by the name of Samuel who happened to be the prophet. And Samuel proceeded to take oil and pour it on this young man's head and say, you will be our king. And there were a couple big things that were happening to this young man's society. They were going from a tribal people 
to kind of an official nation state, and they were going to be led by a singular ruler, not a collection of judges, but by a king, and he was it. And so you can imagine as news spread that Samuel, the prophet that everyone respected, had anointed a king, everyone's pretty excited. They finally get a king. They finally become a real country. They all gather for the coronation, and on coronation day, people from around all the tribal communities had gathered, and they announced the name of their new king, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. But something unforgettable happened on inauguration day. Guess what happened when they announced him? No one could find the guy. And so they start searching. Is he in the bathroom? Bad time to go to the bathroom. So where in the world are you? No one could find him. Finally, they're so unable to find the guy that God has to intervene on inauguration day and out his location. Some people go to where God tells them he is, and indeed he's there. He's hiding under the supplies in the supply tent. And they're pushing aside everyone's luggage and baggage and supplies, and there under it is... Saul, their new king. And they get him out, stand him on his feet, and they're like, whoa, this guy's tall and handsome. He looks like a king. And everyone starts chanting at the same time, long live the king, long live the king. And Saul's like, is there another suitcase I can go hide in? So it was a pretty unforgettable coronation day. Now fast forward, years later, he's married. He's got kids, and his oldest son, the heir to his throne, is now one of his commanders of his military. And now that they're an official nation, now that they have an official army, they can do a draft, they can raise up a big enough army to start defeating the enemies that live all around them. And that's exactly the story that we jump into. So verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan, that's his son, heir to the throne, attacked the Philistine, that's their enemies, outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. So they're, they're starting a conflict to, to really wipe out their enemies. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. All right. So they've done the nationwide draft. All the battle-ready young men join Saul at Gilgal. They're ready for this fight. They join their tall and handsome king, and they're finally going to be this respected nation that has peace. Verse 5. Something unexpected happens, though. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. Those were the Abrams tanks of their day. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, those were the Navy SEALs, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethel, Avon. So the problem, the tension of this story is that everything kind of takes a left turn right here. They're assembled for battle, the nation's unified under their new king, but their enemies assemble a larger and more advanced army. And Saul's troops take one look at the enemy, and they're like, oh no, we're in trouble. Verse 6, when the Philistines saw that their situation was critical, there's a problem, and that their enemy was hard-pressed, I'm sorry, that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in the supply tent. 
<laughs> no, kind of. They hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gilead and Gad. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were doing what? Quaking with fear. That's a great thing for an army to do. So, just like Saul on his coronation day got all scared and hid in the supplies, his troops look at the ar army coming against him. They go run, they jump into pits, caves, they run away. And the few that stay loyal to Saul and stay by his side, they're there, they're next to him, they haven't run away, but they're just trembling with sheer terror at what they see. Now, up till now, although this seems crazy, it's been expected in a sense. Samuel, the prophet, had told the king what was going to happen. And I'll read for you Samuel's prophecy to Saul. He said this, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. That's where Saul is now. He obeyed. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what, I, tell you, what you are to do. So everything's going to plan. Saul's exactly where Samuel told him to be. He's waiting a week exactly like Samuel asked him to do. And the problem is, as the week drags on, and you've got the assembling Philistines with their chariots and their charioteers and their army as thick as the sand on the seashore, as the week drags on, the desertions are piling up. More and more of his military is running away or quaking in fear. And Saul realizes as he gets to the end of those seven days, if I don't do something, I may not have an army left to fight this thing. And so Saul, feeling compelled to do something, takes matters into his own hands and just kind of moves ahead. Look at verse 9. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Now what had Samuel said when it came to those offerings? Wait for me. When I come, I'll offer them, and then I'll tell you what to do. But Saul says, no, 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 bring them to me. And Saul, something a king should never do, that was a priest or prophet's job, Saul offered up the burnt offering. And then just as fate would have it, verse 10, just as he finished making the offering, who shows up? Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. You remember as a kid when your parents would say, you need to wait to eat the dessert, and you're looking at the dessert in front of you, and you're like, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. And a few minutes later, you're like, I can't wait. And just as your mom comes back in the kitchen, you're licking the crumbs off your fingers. And what does she say? What moms have said for generations to naughty kids, what have you done? And that's the moment right here as Samuel catches Saul moving ahead, doing exactly what he should have waited on. Samuel looks at him and he says, Saul, what have you done? So Saul's going to give his explanation. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I, I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer 
the burnt offering. So you notice what Saul is saying, right? My men were scattering. It's their fault. The Philistines were all assembling. It's their fault. You came too late. It's your fault. I was just trying to be spiritual and get God's favor. It's not my fault. I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm just following my heart. I'm just doing what seems right. And Samuel's not confused by all these excuses. And he says this in verse 13 to him. You have done what? A foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, this is where the story kind of gets really sad. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Just like in a movie, all of a sudden the rain starts coming. <laughs> Those of you who are watching online, the rain just started and it's hitting the metal roof and it's a cool sound. It's like at the funeral in a movie, like everything gets sad. Right now at this story, things just get really sad. They get really bad. Because Samuel confronts Saul with the gravity of what just happened. He's like, this isn't a small deal. This is a really big deal. You just jumped ahead of God. And because of it, there's some pretty major consequences you're going to have to deal with. Your reign is going to end prematurely. And your son is not going to become a king. Your family line will not become a dynasty. My friends, impatience wrecks stories and ruins endings. Does anyone want to guess what our respectable sin is today? Impatience seems like not a big deal, right? It's what forces us from one checkout line to another that seems shorter, but inevitably always takes longer. It's what forces us from one lane of traffic to another, only to get stuck behind another slow driver. It's, it, it's what kind of compels us to jump from one relationship and one friendship and one marriage and one school and one church and one job to another. We're just not people who like to wait. Agreed? And we often take matters into our own hands, and then we live with the regret. Saul, for the rest of his life, had to live with the regret of this moment of this day. Now, kind of the rest of the story is that the rest of his life, if you kind of trace out the rest of his kingship, it's a train wreck. Shortly after this, God's spirit leaves him, is replaced by a tormenting spirit, and Saul goes from this tall, handsome king who seems like he's got it all together to a homicidal maniac. And he begins to do this paranoid chase around the desert as he chases a young shepherd boy who he feels threatened by. And it becomes this big game of Tom and Jerry where you can never quite catch the stinking mouse. And, and King Saul can never quite catch this young shepherd boy and spends most of the rest of his reign not leading his nation, not defending him from their enemies, but chasing in paranoid fear, fear, this young shepherd boy. And that tall and handsome man hiding in the baggage on Coronation Day, he just never quite grew up. And instead of being known as Israel's first great king, he becomes known as an epic cowardly failure. And that's exactly what impatience does. Impatience will lead you off a cliff you never even saw. So 
question here as we look at the life of Saul and we look at this moment of impatience, I think it's easy to just assume that impatience is just purely impulsiveness. It's just purely doing something without thinking. And, and sure, there's times where impatience may be that. But what if often impatience is more than just impulsiveness? What if, like Saul, our impatience is rooted in our fears? Fear that I, if, if, if I don't say something, that I'm going to lose control of the situation. Fear that if I just don't take action, that things are going to go bad. And so I step out and I say something that I shouldn't, and I do something that I shouldn't, because I'm trying to act, even though maybe it wasn't the moment I should have. Impatience at its core is a lack of trust. Impatience at its core is a lack of trust. Let me read you something that God says. He says, be still and know that I am God. Is it getting awkward for you yet? We don't like silence. We don't like being still. It's really uncomfortable for most of us. And yet God says, be still and know that I am God. What did Saul not do on this day when he was fearful as he looked at the Philistines and his troops were deserting him? He wasn't still to realize that God was in control. He wasn't still to say, I need to obey and wait for Samuel to do what needs to be done and tell me what needs to happen. He developed this God complex. I gotta step up, I gotta do something. And in that moment, he wasn't being brave. He was being a coward. See, impatience is taking action when I should just be still. Now, Personally, for me, I just kind of chuckled that I'm preaching on impatience because I'm probably one of the least qualified people in the room to preach on this because I don't have much. I'm one of those what they call A-type people. I'd rather move than not. I'd rather act than not. If I'm going to die, I'd rather be caught running than standing still. And, and so I dislike waiting. It's not a natural character quality for me. Are there any other people that would admit patience is not a natural quality for you? You're quick at raising your hand. I respect you. That's good. Now listen, we live in a culture that really affirms us, those of us who are impatient. We live in a culture where the entrepreneurial motto is go fast and break things. The last two weeks, we've, we've watched in awe as two billionaires have rocketed themselves into space in their, own, in their own rockets. We like people who get things done. We like people who go fast. We like people who accomplish things. We like speed. And we view patience as passivity in our culture. We view patience and slowness as passivity and even laziness. But I've got a challenge for you, and it's one that I've taken as I've studied this, I want you to think back through your life on some of your biggest mistakes, some of your biggest regrets. Some of you are like, well, that didn't take long. 
Think back on them, things that you've maybe said or done that you wish you hadn't, relationships that you exited that you wish you had stayed in, or relationships you got in that you wish you hadn't gotten into. Think for a moment of your biggest regrets and mistakes. I have a follow-up question. Here's my follow-up question. How many of those big mistakes that you've made in your life were the result of you being too patient? Me neither. Right? Most of the mistakes or bad choices that I've made were just the opposite. It was me moving ahead of God, acting when I should have been still, speaking when I should have been quiet. And if only, that's that two-word regret phrase that rings in our ears that Saul, the rest of his life, was saying, if only at Gilgal I had waited for Samuel. How different would my life be? How different would my reign be? How different would my family be? How different would my legacy be? If only I had waited. If only I hadn't jumped ahead of God. See, we view action as courage, but the reality is it's patience that takes courage. And that's why Saul couldn't do it. Saul proved on coronation day he didn't have much courage. He was a guy who wrestled with enormous fear. And fear compelled him to act and move ahead of God. Waiting on God is not the easy thing. Waiting on God is the hard thing. Because in those moments of fear, everything within me is screaming, say something, do something, act. And Saul just didn't have the courage to wait. The irony of his story is that shepherd boy he spent the rest of his life chasing around the desert, he was God's choice for the next king. Saul's paranoia was justified in a sense because God was going to take a young, very unnotable shepherd boy who would be known for his trust and his patience to be the next king. And that's what's kind of haunting about verse 14. When, when God tells him, your kingdom will not endure, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you, Saul, have not kept the Lord's command. David would be a man of incredible patience. He had to be. He lived a lot of his young life in caves in the desert, hiding from paranoid, fearful, impulsive King Saul. One day David would be king. One day his son Solomon would be one of the most famous kings in Israel. And one day his son Solomon would write these words. And I wonder if as, as he wrote these words, he was thinking about his dad and he was thinking about the previous king before his dad Saul. Here's what he wrote. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Those are pretty powerful words from King Solomon. Trust in the Lord. Those of us who are impatient, maybe these are some of the verses that need to be on the three-by-five card next to the speedometer on our dash. Maybe they need to be on our ball cap as we're in line at Walmart. 
Maybe they need to be front and center. Don't depend on your own understanding. My nature will compel me to move ahead of God, and that leads to tragic endings. That leads to messed up stories. That leads to me going off a cliff that I never even saw. Trust in the Lord with all my heart. The rest of Saul's reign was this volatile existence like a volcano. You're never sure it was going to blow. You're just convinced of something. It's going to blow repeatedly. Because the rest of his life, he kept trusting God less and kept fearing stuff more. And that's why impatience doesn't seem like that big of a deal on the surface. It seems like a respectable sin until you peel behind the curtains and you realize that what often powers our impatience is mistrust and fear. It takes courage to wait for God. Now, psychologists have a little phrase for this. They say in moments of crisis, the human nature, the human psyche has a response. And that response is fight, flight, or freeze. When we're in a crisis situation, we either are are instinctively ready to fight it out, we're instinctively ready to run away, or we're, we're we're just frozen. And God wants his kids to not do any three of those. It is a totally different path than fighting it out, freezing, or running away. And most of us just don't have the patience and the courage to do something different. And here's what's kind of relieving. God doesn't tell me I have to just try harder. Justin, just try harder to be patient. Because as a goal-oriented person, I would try harder and be really, really frustrated with myself all the time. God doesn't tell us to try harder to be patient. You know what he says? He says this. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Every week as we've looked at a respectable sin, we look at a corresponding fruit of the Spirit of God that counteracts it, that's the antidote. God says, look, I can grow in your heart something that's not native, something that's natural. Patience can be the invasive species of your heart that can take control. And if you let me develop it in you, you'll be shocked at the patience that you don't have naturally that begins to develop, that isn't core to who you are, it isn't native to your personality but I can develop that in you. You know why God can develop patience in us? Because God has so much of it to give away. Do you know, the Jews had a term for God, and it's kind of weird. They said that God was the God with the long nose. Have you ever heard that before? Some of you immediately think of a Disney movie. What are you thinking of? Yeah, Pinocchio. And it's not talking about God's a liar. God can't lie. The, the, the idiom in Hebrew of God having a long nose was this. It was this idea that when God got angry, it took a long time for his nose to get red. When God got impatient, it took a long time for it to show on his face because he had such a long nose. And it was this idea that God's fuse was very long. His restraint was very strong. And so many times when God would get upset or angry and want to take action, you see God instead pulling back. Over and over and over, when you see God getting agitated or upset or angry, 
and he could have acted, you see God restraining himself and holding back. And God said, look, I've got this thing called patience that I can give you. I can grow inside of you. And I can hold you back. If you think of the Christian life, and this is kind of illustrative of how we're to live and do this thing called patience, there's really one road sign that should typify our lives. If you think of a road sign that should typify our lives as Christians, what might it be? It's not a stop sign, thank God. It's not even a speed limit sign. You know what it is? It's a yield sign. Those of you who have a driver's license, tell me what a yield sign means. No, it doesn't mean speed up. I think you actually got it, Mark, and I'm impressed. You recently took the test, didn't you? It means you nailed the first part. Slow down and prepare to yield the right of way. Did you nail it? You nailed it. Man, these young drivers, we need to go back and take lessons from them. Slow down and prepare to yield the right of way. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, in that moment, I was saying, God, the rest of my life, I'll give up control of my life. The rest of my life, I will give up leadership of my life. The rest of my life, I'm going to want to go faster. I'm going to want to say things and do things, but I'm going to slow down, and I'm going to prepare to yield the right of way. How much different would Saul's life have been if in this moment on day seven, when he's waiting for Samuel, he just realizes I'm at a yield sign and I gotta slow down. If he had waited just a little bit longer, Samuel would have showed up. He would have offered the sacrifices and God would have told him exactly what to do and he would have had victory over those Philistines. And he would have probably established his dynasty for all time. But he jumped ahead of God. The Christian life is the yielded life. It's the life that says, God, you're my new leader, and when I come to a fork in the road, when I come to an intersection, when I come to a turn, I'm going to slow down and prepare to yield the right of way. It doesn't mean I live in fear and hesitancy. I'm always ready to tap the brake. It just means I'm just slowing down. I'm letting off the gas. I'm being still and letting God be God and direct me and tell me what to do, when to do it, what to say. So let me just encourage you with this. The next time you're tempted to be impatient, let one name pop into your head. Saul. The next time you're, you're ready to hit the gas, the next time you're ready to do something and exit or enter something too fast, just, just, just stop for a moment and think, Saul. Saul at Gilgal. Saul at Gilgal jumped ahead of God. And in one moment of impatience, he threw away his future. So let's, let's get a little personal here. What's your Gilgal? What's your area? Many of us have at least one area that we find it really hard to be patient. Is it your marriage? Some of you are like, no, I got that under control. Good for you. Is, is it your kids? Is, is it your job? Is it your understanding of current event? I mean, what is it for you that's your Gilgal where you're tempted to move ahead of God? Let me speak kind of pastorally to 
our kids this morning. Those of you who are young people in this room, I want to speak to you watching online at, the, at another campus. Let me speak to you as kids. Kids, I, w- I want you to do something to me. If you're a young person, a teen, I want you to look around this room. Do me a favor. Look around your room, whatever you're in. Look around, and what do you see? You don't have to say it out loud. You see a bunch of older people <laughs> who used to be young like you, and we desperately wanted to grow up. And now we would love to switch places with you. And I know you think that's crazy because you can't wait for graduation, you can't wait for driver's license, you can't wait for more freedom, you can't wait for later curfew. And that's a good desire. If if you didn't have that desire to grow up, we'd be worried about you. But the, the challenge is this. Your desire to grow up quicker can lead you to do things that you're just not ready for yet. And when you step ahead in independence, Beyond where your parents have given you permission, you're being like Saul. And when we're young, we feel like we're nine foot tall and bulletproof. Paul, isn't that what you always say? You know, nine foot tall and bulletproof when we're young. But actions have consequences. And all around this room are older people that wish they could go back and be younger and not do some of the things they did. And they're living with the scars and the baggage of choices they make they made and, and, and things they said that they wish, they wish they could take back. You've probably heard, young people, that your frontal cortex takes a while to develop. The part of your brain that's the executive processing, it doesn't develop until what age? <laughs> 25. Someone nailed it. Until 25. Young people, this is why God gave you parents and teachers and mentors and grandparents. They know more than you know They've experienced more than you've experienced, and they have more pain than you want. Slow down, listen to them, and let God develop patience in you. And I promise you, your future will be brighter and your life will be better. Let me talk for a moment to singles, especially those of you who are younger, or maybe you know, you're widowed, and, and as a single, you really don't want to be single. You really want to be married. And again, that's a good desire. God looked at the first single guy and said, it's not good for guys to be alone. And he created a woman and invented marriage. Now, some people have the gift of singleness and they're very content and and God blesses that and loves that. But for those of you who are single and and don't want to be, you want to be married, let me just give you a challenge. Don't jump ahead of God. Don't jump ahead of God. There are so many people sitting all around you that are spending their life thinking, if only, if only I hadn't settled, if only we hadn't compromised. You know, I know some amazing people that are held back by lousy spouses. And they have the rest of their marriage to think, if only I had waited, if only I hadn't jumped ahead of God. His best for me was out there, and I went for my best. And I wouldn't wait. I heard someone wisely say this, better to be single and wish you weren't than to be married and wish you weren't. Those of you who are married, even if you agree, please don't say amen to that. (laughs) Single friends, let God give you the courage to be patient because sometimes his best takes a while. 
It's like me, really hungry, sitting at Texas Roadhouse, and I know my 16-ounce New York strip steak is sizzling on the grill, but I'm just too hungry, and I run to McDonald's and get a double cheeseburger. <laughs> that double cheeseburger will fill me, but I guarantee I'll regret it. Because fine food takes a while. and Sometimes God's best does too. Let God develop patience in you. Don't jump ahead of him. Let, let me speak for a moment to those of you who are young parents. Right? Young parents, it's exhausting to keep little people alive and happy. And often, we're just holding out till they're asleep. And victory for us is we survived another day. And we just keep telling ourselves something. We keep telling ourselves when, when they get older, it'll get easier. Have you ever talked to a parent with older kids? They're laughing at you right now. Because they'll tell you that when, you're, when your kids are younger, it's all physical. Parenting's all physical. When your kids get older, it's all mental. And it's just as exhausting in a different category. <laughs> Amen says a mom of not so young kids anymore. So I don't say that to discourage you as young parents. I say that to encourage you, don't miss this stage. Don't miss it. Someday, you're going to look back at pictures of this year and say, oh, I would love to go back. You're going to look back and think, those were the best years of our lives. You're going to look back and say, oh, life was so simple back then. Don't miss this stage. Let God develop patience in you. Those of you who are parents of older kids, here's a little challenge for you. Sometimes our world pressures you. You know, your, your kids have to be involved in everything, right? And so you, you feel like a taxi driver because you're always shuttling your kid from one event and one sport and, and one club to the next. And just kind of like Saul, like if I just do X, everything will be okay. And, and you're always pressured by our culture. If you just let them do one more thing, if you just have them do one more thing, then, then life will be more complete and they'll be more well-rounded and they'll be happier. My friends, what you're... What your older kids probably don't need more of is activity. What they probably need more of is just consistent family meals and consistent family devotions. If you're too busy to be still as a family and know that he is God, then can I tell you what's happening? You're setting yourself up to be God. You're developing a God complex and all of your life and your schedule and your family is revolving around you and I'm guessing that you're probably stretched thin and I'm guessing that you're probably pretty volatile and I'm guessing that it doesn't take much to upset everything and to throw everything out of whack. You're gonna have all of eternity to enjoy all the best experiences that life has to offer. You don't have to pack them all in now. What if you just slow down? Slow down and let God develop patience in you and your family. Let me speak for a moment to our, to our middle-agers. Okay, because when you get to a point where your kids move out, some of you are like, they're never going to move out. Some of you are like, okay, but they did move out, and it was kind of sad. And often empty nests can be a domino effect. It can, it can create these feelings of, what's next? Who am I? I was always known as a parent, and now... That's different. Do I even love my spouse? I, I don't know what we have together without our kids. And it can create all these midlife crises, questions. This is a, a season of your life where you get a chance to slow down 
You probably have more disposable time and income than you've ever had. This is a chance to slow down and say, okay, God, what's next? Okay, God, how do I set a legacy for my, for my kids? How do, I, how do I live in a way that my grandkids would love to follow my example? Are you taking time to stop and ask God, God, what are your plans for my next stage? Are you being still before a God who likes to whisper? Maybe you're going to have to turn off the TV. Maybe you're going to have to pause the hobbies. Maybe you're going to have to slow down and take inventory. Are you living a life of courageous, patient faith? Or are you running ahead of God? And, and maybe it's a matter of finding your Samuel. Who's your Samuel? Who's your older, wiser person that you can go to and say, listen, I really respect you. I'm guessing that you probably were where I am now at one point. What perspective and advice do you have for me? Maybe you want to tap into a Samuel and ask them for advice because this season of your life can become your most productive and fulfilling season if you yield to God's leadership. Let me end just by speaking to you who are retirees. You're some of the wisest people in the room or wherever you're at, you're some of the wisest people. And maybe you're sitting here and, and you've been nodding and smiling as we've been talking about different groups like, yep, yeah, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. Listen, you already know that patience is a really important quality. You've already probably experienced the consequences of impatience. You've been there, you've done that, and you have the t-shirt. You don't need more advice today, especially from a young preacher. So I just want to encourage you. Keep living the yielded life. Because it doesn't seem like it, but I promise the rest of us are watching you. And when we're filled with fear and we're panicking and you're just a stable, patient follower of Jesus, we notice you. When we're clamoring for change and, and, we're, and, and we're volatile and, and you're just walking steadily in faith and patience, we admire you. And I know it doesn't seem like it because it's the volcanoes that get all the attention, but no one wants to live next to a volcano. We'd rather live on a peaceful hill, and you're our peaceful hills. Thank you for being stable and being patient and being an example for the rest of us. See, patience takes courage especially some of you retirees, you have it in spades. And you are so courageous. Imagine if the rest of us followed your example. Imagine if we didn't make fear-based decisions. Imagine if we didn't have impulse living. Imagine if we just slowed down and prepared to yield the right of way. Imagine if we just trusted ourselves less and trusted God more. What a freeing way to live. It's the life Saul never got to experience. But his predecessor, David, did because in caves in the desert, he learned what it meant to trust God. And he endured patiently some really challenging things in his rule, in his family, because God taught him to be, slow, be still and to know that he is God. Would you bow with me this morning? Let me ask you, my friend, where's, 
your Gilgal? Where's the area of your life where you find patience hard? I'm sure you have one. I have many. Let's just pray and ask God for his help to develop patience in us. Not through our power, not through our willpower, but through the power of the Spirit of God. Father God, I ask for myself for patience. I pray that you will develop this in me, something that's not native to my personality. Give me the ability to be still and know that you are God. Give me the courage to be quiet. Give me the courage to not act when everything inside of me feels like I should. God, teach me to patiently follow you in faith. God, in a moment, we're going to be singing a song about your faithfulness and our need to trust you. God, help us to have that courageous patience that we trust you through the good, the bad, through the upside down. Because you're a good God, you always come through, and we can rely on you 100%. We pray this in the incredibly powerful name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. amen.